Jennifer, what is the difference between young adult fiction versus non-YA fiction? Well, young adult fiction is a category. It is not technically a genre, and it involves protagonists for the most part that are ages 12 to 18 years old. Um, the readership for a young adult is traditionally um, teens, but it has it has exploded. Um, more adults are reading uh, the category, so over 50% of the readers of young adult fiction are now technically adults. So um, that's basically what distinguishes it. Will be teen characters. Teen characters, okay. And in terms of what happens in the story, the arc, how does it differ from adult readership? Um, I don't know if the character arcs differ so much. I mean, um, they're basically the same kind of stories um, that everyone's telling. Um, technically, a lot of them maybe are coming-of-age stories, um, and they're because we're dealing with um, that time in a character's life, which is, you know, their teen years. Um, but right now, the genre has become so expansive that it's really tackling lots of hard-hitting issues, things like suicide, things like drug use, even things like abortion are being tackled. Um, so it's really kind of expanded the kind of subject matter. Um, I tend to write genre, which is science fiction, so you do see a lot of science fiction fantasy kind of writing, and I think that um, it's more, kind of more fun because um, teen readers have huge imaginations and they love reading that kind of stuff. Right. Now, what attracts you to science fiction versus more of, let's say, a personal, uh, you know, like an interpersonal story? Yeah, like contemporary. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, contemporary is hugely popular. That's probably the most popular thing happening in young adult right now. And the first book I ever wrote um, was actually an adult contemporary novel, um, which did not sell. It did go on submission. That is a very typical story you'll hear from most authors. Most authors uh, don't sell their first book. Um, it did a lot of work for me. It landed me a huge agent and I learned a lot writing it. Um, but my heart and my passion has always been in genre writing. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I love Star Wars movies. Um, growing up, I read a lot of science fiction stuff like Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote Tarzan, but I'm obsessed with his Mars books, his John Carter series. Um, so I, once I started writing it, I just was like, wow, how did I not start writing this from the beginning? I love it so much. Um, what I love about science fiction in particular is kind of this idea of where our world might be going and really grounding it in uh, real science, real details, and really looking at something that might be predictive but also instructive about you know some of the pitfalls we're falling into. Um, a lot of my books do deal with uh, issues like uh, weapons, nuclear proliferation, like what could happen in the future with that. Um, so allegorically, it's pretty fascinating. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what draws me to science fiction. Can we talk about the ways in which the young adult audience differs from the adult audience, not just in terms of age, but also maybe in the outcome of the story? Or is it the same thing? Um, you know, the story outcome, in t I think, I mean, honestly, I think storytelling is storytelling. I mean, I think that um, those of us who are writing young adult um, are really striving to tell stories that are really captivating and interesting. Um, so I don't know that there's a lot of difference between them. Um, aside from the preoccupation, like you're not going to see a young adult story that's a lot about, you know, long-term marriage, let's, you know, you might get it as terms of, you know, parent characters and maybe relationships. But, um, you know, young adult, I think, though, is a little bit freeing writing it because, you know, with adult fiction, you tend to get locked in to certain, 
you know, audiences, and I think the readers are a little more jaded. Um, what I love about meeting teen readers is that they're not jaded. They are so enthusiastic. When they love something, they love it with their whole hearts, and they get so excited. And there's nothing like getting kids reading. So um, that's sort of the difference that I see. And the adults that are reading it, they're looking for something fun and something escapist and something that reminds them of that time in their life when they were teenagers. So the, again, that tends to be less of like the jaded kind of, oh, this is like some huge literary book where like everyone hates each other and they're all unlikable. Like, not that you couldn't write that, but it tends to be a genre where it's more fun to read. I think people are looking for something that's enjoyable. When these uh, readers approach you at book signings or whatever, um, are they approaching you from the angle of enjoying the story and feeling as if the characters are real, or are they aspiring YA authors as well? Uh, you know, most of the people that come to book festivals and book signings are just avid readers. Like, they're really passionate about reading. Um, usually the people that are turning up at these events read voraciously. So you're talking people that consume large quantities of books. Um, occasionally you get parents that are dragging their kids um, along, but um, mostly it's readers. I will get occasionally um, teens that are aspiring to write, and I do work with um, a mentoring program where I mentor kids and teach writing, um, which I love. Um, and I always get excited whenever I meet someone that's interested in writing or inspired to write. Um, a big thing that happens with young adult um, readers is that they end up writing fan fiction, or at least that's a lot of times their first foray into writing, um, which is hugely popular online. So fan fiction would be uh, like Harry Potter fan fiction is huge. So that would be writing stories about the Harry Potter characters um, for fun, really. I mean, that's really the reason to do it. And there are quite a few um, fan fiction authors who've gone on to huge success. Like the author that wrote the Mortal Instruments series, she started out writing uh, Harry Potter fan fiction. Um, E.L. James, who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, that is famously, that is Twilight fan fiction. So you see a lot of that going on. Jennifer, you talked about writing a first book that did not sell, and I find that fascinating. A lot of screenwriters that watch our channel also kind of think that their first screenplay will sell. Can you talk about how that was actually probably a great stepping stone for you, although it didn't sell? Yeah, I can talk about it. So um, when I first started writing books, my background was that I had worked in uh, the film business for a long time. So I knew a lot about screenplays, screenplay writing, the process for that. I did not know much about publishing. I did not know much about how to write a novel, which is a totally different kind of task. So um, I kind of set about, um, you know, teach, instructing myself. I was largely self-taught. I don't have a writing degree, and I learned how to write. And I ended up writing a book, and the book is adult contemporary. It's a first person narrative, which tends to be uh, a little more straightforward to write. It's one main character and um, a little bit more of a version of myself, which is what most people write when they write their first book. Um, and so then once I'd finished it and gotten it into shape where I thought that it was worth showing, I started querying agents, which is the process. Um, if you would like to pursue traditional publishing, that's the process that you go through. And unlike in the film business where blind querying typically does not work. In publishing, it really does work. Book agents, you um, can follow the submission guidelines on their websites. Um, the best thing to do is to look at agents that have sold similar books to what you're writing and to select them based on this being something they would also be interested in. And then you send them a query letter. So a query letter has a specific format, um, which is usually less than a page and will include a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your book, and it really is what we would call an elevator pitch. 
uh, in the film business, which is snappy, concise, hopefully hooking and eye-catching uh, about what your book's about. And then if they're interested, you'll hear back and they'll want to read the manuscript, hopefully. Um, so my first book, which was called All Worked Up and is about a uh, workaholic who gets sent to high-end celebrity rehab in Malibu, um, which is a really fun story. Um, it's interesting. It had a lot of fans. It landed me a dream agent, an agent I never thought would sign me. Um, she had sold The Devil Wears Prada, which was a good comp for my book at the time and was a huge selling title. Um, and so the book did a lot of work for me. It taught me how to write. It landed me representation. Um, I was warned at the beginning that it would be hard to sell because the genre, which was, um, if you, I mean, this is one of the things that happens in publishing. If you're a woman who writes a book about a woman, it tends to get categorized as women's fiction, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion. And so the book, that's a hard genre to sell, or was at the time. So the book went on submission. Um, but by that point, I'd already started writing what was going to be um, my debut, which is the Yay. 13th Continuum. I don't think I could have written what became my debut if I had not written um, my first book, which was Adult Contemporary. Um, this is the 13th Continuum, and it involves uh, multiple points of view, so I was writing multiple characters. Um, it's the first time I wrote in third person, um, which is a little bit more of a challenge to have voice in when you're first starting to write and uh, involves colonies in multiple locations, so it's a pretty sweeping story. They're underwater, underground, in an outer space. So um, my first book that I wrote, I think, really enabled me to then write this book. I don't think I could have written the story if I hadn't had uh, that first book under my belt, because I learned so much doing it. Let's talk about how long a process that was. That's fascinating. So you were working in the film industry. Mm -hmm. You decided to write this book about sort of somebody going to celebrity rehab or, yes. or visiting that. And then from that first time you sat down to write it, then how, did, how, how much time went by when this was actually a finished, finished product in your hand? 13th continuum. Gosh, uh, so f probably five years from me starting to say, hey, I want to write novels to um, landing a publishing deal, which is actually pretty fast, believe it or not. Yes, there are Cinderella stories of authors who sold instantly at auction, um, but those are pretty rare. Um, usually authors that sell books have been writing, usually they'll have a couple, um, even people like David Benioff, who I think is a phenomenal writer. He's a showrunner on Game of Thrones, he wrote The 25th Hour. I believe The 25th Hour was maybe the third book he had written, but maybe the first he sold, something like that, he, you know, and that is a very typical story. Okay, so you, you'd gone to, you got to Harvard for film. Mm -hmm. uh, what were you reading or what were you looking at that helped you write the first book that, you know, eventually transcended into your YA career? What were you reading that was helping you? Well, gosh, I always story? say, right, I always advise writers that you shouldn't write a genre or a category that you don't love, right? So if you're someone who only reads thrillers, don't go ahead and try to write like a romance novel. You know, um, likewise, I'm not a huge romance reader. It's a hugely popular category. I have friends that write it. Um, I should not be writing romance novels because <laughs> you know I'm obviously geek for um, Outlander, but for the most part, it's not something I read a lot of. So it's probably not what I should be writing. Um, when I first came into novel writing, there were two types of books I loved to read the most, and those were uh, what I'm going to call female-driven narratives with female protagonists. Um, which, as I said, is often categorized as women's fiction, and then um, big young adult science fiction fantasy books. So that's most of what I was reading at the time. Um, in terms of learning to write, um, I always advise people, um, 
I just try to read really good writing. It's kind of like playing a game of tennis, you know? If you play someone worse than you, you're gonna play terribly. If you play someone who's way out of your league, your game will be so much better, even if you lose. And so I'm always trying to find who are the best writers um, out there right now, um, even if they're not anything like what I'm writing. Um, so um, when I was first trying to write really good third-person voice, I looked at Neil Gaiman a lot because I just think he's an incredible writer and storyteller and his books are so engaging. So things like American Gods, I looked at very closely the way he writes character, the way he writes prose. And then when, did you find that you were writing just like Neil Gaiman? Because I've, <laughs> I've heard that happen that if you focus too much on someone that you really enjoy, then your style sort yes, of becomes that. you can. I mean, everyone says that when you first start writing, you know, you're imitating. Like, imitation is usually what happens. Um, gosh, I hope I'm writing like Neil Gaiman, you know, because that would just be amazing. Um, you know, I, that's part of why I think it's also good not to saturate too much. So if there are books that are really similar to what you're working on, I usually try not to read too much of them at the same time because it can seep in. Um, whereas if you're just reading someone who's just a really strong writer, like Donna Tartt is another one. I don't write anything like her, but you know, then I think just the caliber of the writing will seep in and you'll write better. Um, but yeah, I think most of us start by kind of imitating the things that we love. I mean, the strongest influences on the 13th Continuum, and it's part of why the cover has such a classic um, kind of sci-fi throwback feel, is that um, it's very influenced by Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Um, which is a huge influence on me. Um, it's also very influenced by Lord of the Rings, which I worked on the films for and I'm a huge fan of. Um, but it's not an influence in terms of the way that it's written. It's an influence in terms of some of the ideas it's tackling. Um, I looked at Lord of the Rings for the structure of a trilogy because I think the way that that story is told is just really incredible. And I really wanted to avoid writing a, a series where you know, the first book's great, but then the second book is disappointing, or even worse, the third book is disappointing, because as a reader, I get really, you know, upset when I have invested and it's not going to deliver. I really wanted to write um, a trilogy where each book is really advancing story and building into something big, and I think Lord of the Rings was what I looked at to see how um, he, Tolkien, um, structured his story, so... Jennifer, what are some of the things that a young adult author needs to know about their readership? Well, I think one of the most important things to know is that um, your readership or it's the category your main protagonist needs to be a teenager. Now there is a range for what um, that age is. Um, the sweet spot is somewhere around 16 years old. Um, if you're writing a character much younger than that, your book is probably going to be middle grade. 12, 13 is probably going to skew a little younger. Um, although the genre has opened up a little and 16, 17, 18, um, even college seems somewhat appropriate now. Um, in terms of the readership, I mean, I think the only thing you need to know is that they're, the fans are there, they're very passionate, um, they're looking for new material that they can fall in love with. Um, one of the interesting things I have encountered is that they like to read hard books a lot. Um, whereas I, coming into it, had suspected that there'd be more e-readers out there. I actually tend to read more on my Kindle, and um, a lot of the teen readers that come to me, they want hard copies. They really still love to consume uh, hard books, and I know there have been a lot of uh, apocalyptic predictions about how, you know, there aren't going to be print books anymore, but based on my encounters, I don't think that's true at all. Um, and so, yeah, that's really it. They're really excited. They're passionate. They want to read. They're big readers. 
Um, and I think it's great that um, kids are still reading. Um, the other thing I see a lot is that uh, essentially Harry Potter, which is you know J.K. Rowling's series, um, produced a whole generation of readers. So they've grown up now and they're still reading and they still love to read. So she kind of did a huge service for every other author out there. We talk about censorship and the young adult reader. I mean, when I was um, in my teens, I was reading Judy Bloom, which seemed... She's amazing. Yeah, it was fantastic. Still around, too. <laughs> yes, she is, which was, you know, sort of edgy for that time. It was. Whereas I know that the problems presented in those books are nowhere near what's going on in today's world. So talk about um, censorship, whether you stay away from it, whether you... I know you're, you're talking more about other worlds, yeah. things like that, but there's there's... There is, um, yeah, so when you're writing genre like science fiction, there is a certain freedom um, that can come from it because you're not writing this world. So my books do have a lot of religious elements in them, but the religions in them are not religions that exist now. So you're able to do a critique, for, for example, of what that looks like without maybe directly offending um, somebody because you're not criticizing their choice of religion. It's more looking at a future society. Um, likewise, I think it's easier to have... Um, diverse cast of characters. There's a reason why um, Star Trek, the original series, was the first show to have a uh, black actress in a leading role because um, there's something about it that frees you from the cultural norms of now and you're able to envision um, a different kind of society. Um, in terms of what's happened in young adult as um, it's exploded, uh, young adult fiction I believe now outsells adult fiction which is kind of a huge deal. Um, adult fiction sales are down right now. Um, young adult is still growing. Um, and so as that's happened and as more people are coming in and writing uh, young adult fiction, um, you're seeing um, them tackle more hard-hitting um, stories. I have a friend who wrote a book which is about a kid dealing um, with the aftermath after his mother has committed suicide. Um, so you're seeing a lot of people tackling issues that are pretty um, serious. John Green's very popular book, Fault in Our Stars, is dealing with kids with cancer um, and what that looks like for them. Um, so I think that you're able to tackle a lot of pretty serious issues. In terms of censorship, um, I have heard stories from some of my author friends about them encountering some some backlash over things they've written about. Um, I've also heard of editors flagging cussing and cuss words, um, which is interesting. Um, a lot of us feel strongly that, you know, teenagers talk in a certain way and you should be able to, within reason, have some of that because um, I just don't think it's realistic otherwise. Um, you know, in my books, I get to invent my own cuss words because we have different worlds, so I can kind of get away with it and I haven't had to tackle it the same way that other authors who write contemporary do. Um, but, you know, I just sort of think I'm just so against censorship in all forms. I mean, I think people can choose what they want to read or don't want to read. Nobody is forcing anything on anyone. Um, but, you know, Judy Bloom had a huge impact on me. And, you know, I can't, uh, Tamora Pierce's Alana series had a huge impact on me. It's about a girl who uh, wants to be a knight. So she binds her chest and dresses up like a boy. But there is a whole scene, I was just reading an interview, where um, she gets her period and she doesn't know what it is. And it's this whole, it was so groundbreaking at the time that Tamora Pierce, who's amazing, wrote it. It had a huge impact on me. Uh, but now that would almost be very bland. Like, I don't even think it would have the same effect. But back then, like, like Judy Bloom, like Tiger Eyes, yeah, it was a huge deal. So, yeah, so I think that there has been more of an acceptance, but, you know, I can't say that there isn't any censorship still. 
Is there a list of books that are, are banned as it was? <laughs> I mean, I know that, that Judy Bloom was on some list. Oh, she was. Harry Potter has, yeah, day. Harry Potter's been banned. Um, there was just recently, the, there's a banned books day where we celebrate banned books. Um, yeah, a lot of books that you would think, like Harry Potter to me seems very tame. Um, that has been banned a lot for, um, for, uh, by Christians for promoting sorcery or something totally wacky in my mind to that nature, like promoting, I don't know, things that are anti-Christian. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, the fact that Harry Potter has been targeted. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of like classic sci science fiction books have been targeted a lot over the years. Um, but yeah, one of my favorite books, Fahrenheit 451, is literally about burning books and banning books. Um, there is a whole plot line in my book, The 13th Continuum, um, where my underwater world has fallen into a dark age, um, which is ruled by a religious contingent. So everything from before doom was destroyed in the Great Purging. So we, I do deal with that in my book um, and what happens, the fallout of when you start to censor and eliminate information and then what happens to that world. So yeah, I, I'm a very strong believer in access to um, all of these things. Um, so, but yeah, I think we're still dealing with some censorship. Um, the internet though has also opened up a lot. It's so much easier to access things. It used to be back in the day you were beholden to your, in my case, library or maybe your local bookstore, and I grew up in a small southern town. Um, so I was sort of at the mercy of what they were willing to carry. Uh, nowadays, if my kid had a Kindle, you know, like I, I would have bankrupted my parents if I had one. But, um, you know, you can just access any book in the world. So I think it's pretty neat. Is young adult fiction always told from a first person point of view? Um, that's actually a great question. Um, it is mostly, most YA books that um, I see are told from a first person point of view. Um, my books are not, and I actually do think that was a challenge in selling them. My books are written more like Game of Thrones. They're written in third person alternating point of views. Um, you know, um, but that said, it is third person close. So thir third person omniscient is where more of like the God's perspective. Um, third person close is where you're still in the character's point of view, um, but I'm writing it still in third person. Um, so I am actually hoping that we're going to see more of that because I think that it gives more scope to the way you tell a story, especially in a genre like the big science fiction types of stuff that I'm writing. Um, but yeah, largely you see that, and I think part of that is that it is relatable and that um, the voice of the character then really shines through. Um, and first person stories can be great too. I mean, the first book I ever wrote was in first person and I haven't fully ruled out ever writing in it again because I think it can be fun and can be done. Um, the downside of it, um, and you can see it in series like Hunger Games, um, I love the first book, uh, Hunger Games is told in a first person narrative, um, but then, and it's a huge world, but as the books proceeded through the trilogy um, and you're still locked into one point of view, it started to get very limiting by the third book because you had this whole revolution going on, you had all these districts, and yet you weren't able to see that in the book, whereas the film it was able to open that up and show you everything because a film you know, has that bigger perspective. Um, so I think it can get limiting, especially if you're looking at telling a story over multiple volumes. So um, I'm hopeful that we'll see more third-person narratives. But yes, you do see a lot of the first person. And second person? Is, oh that, my is gosh. there such a thing? Yeah, I, I, had, um, I had a writing student who was like, I'm writing in second person. And I was like, are you trying to make your life really hard? <laughs> um, not to say that it hasn't ever been done or can't be done. Every rule can be broken. Um, I think, 
especially in a short story or something more experimental, you could probably get away with it or pull it off. Um, writing in second person through the scope of a novel, I think would be extraordinarily difficult. Um, part of the reason is that, um, and I always tell um, my students this, is that, um, you know, I think it's worthwhile to always have your reader in mind, um, unless you just want to write books in your bedroom and nobody will read them and you're cool with that. But if you think you might want readers, um, you don't usually want to do anything that's going to totally throw them out of your narrative um, or lose them. And writing in second person can feel, I would think, distracting um, just because it's not typically done. I mean, I don't even know that I could name a novel that's written all in second person. Um, I think you could maybe get away with it in parts if you were trying to do something interesting. Um, but you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to really disorient somebody now. But I also always say every rule has been broken, will be broken, and there are incredible writers who are going to do things that I can't even fathom. So, but I would say, especially when you're first starting to write, don't do anything that's reinventing the wheel or that's going to make it too challenging for yourself because it's already a huge challenge to finish a novel. It's like a huge deal. So um, I always recommend starting in first or third person and a lot of times actually in first person. And the reason is that um, developing voice is I think one of the hardest things to do as a writer um, and it is easier to do it in first person. So going back to the first uh story that you wrote, the first novel, um, was that your intention to have other readers or was this more for you, it was more personal? I've always written because I would love to have readers. Um, I started writing because I'm such a voracious reader and I love nothing more than being caught in the middle of a story where it's keeping me up till three or four in the morning because I can't put it down. I think it's the single best thing in the world. Um, so I kind of wanted to write books like that. I wanted to write books that where people would stay up late at night reading them. That's uh, probably the biggest compliment anyone could ever give me. Um, so I started out thinking that I did want to publish. I did want to publish traditionally. Um, ideally, and I did um, want other people to read my book. Um, that said, I wrote the first one in first person because of the voice question. Like, I was trying to work very hard to develop voice as a writer, and like I mentioned, I think that's easier to do in first person. I had other reasons. My narrator is also unreliable. That's another good reason to write in first person. Um, if for some reason you have a character that is not trustworthy, um, my character was an alcoholic, but she didn't know it and she wouldn't admit it. So um, it makes her an interesting narrator. Um, the very popular book, Girl on a Train, uses a similar narrative technique, right? Where the main character has blackouts and doesn't remember things. So she is inherently unreliable and it makes for a very good thriller. So, um, so that's another reason to choose uh, the narrator to be a certain tense. First person puts us in her POV, so we're beholden to what she thinks. But what if what she thinks is inaccurate? Now, I found this from going through the Barnes & Noble blog from an article earlier this year by Jenny Kowecki. I hope I'm saying her name right. <laughs> Six YA novels that subvert the mean girl trope. Oh. I know you're not always writing about sort of interpersonal relationships, but this could apply to villains. So she just kind of opens the article with, she's a cheerleader, she's out to get your best friend for no apparent reason, she's the ever popular mean girl of the fictional teen universe. While we love a good mean girl, and we could substitute, you know, um, antagonist, we also wonder about her backstory. Why does she hate everyone? What's going on behind the scenes? So. I guess it was saying how, you know, even with the mean girl, you have to give them some sort of human quality that, that makes you maybe feel some empathy or gives you some reason for why the person is the way they are. Absolutely. To... Yeah. We always say antagonists um, are the same as protagonists. They believe that what they're doing is right. 
usually. I mean, sure, you could have someone that's like crazy arch and, you know, maybe there is no motivation. But for the most part, there's a reason why and every character should have motivating factors. They're much more interesting that way and should have their own reasons for doing things. I mean, the best, most classic example is Star Wars, um, Darth Vader, right? Um, and they studied very classical archetypes when they were putting those movies together. But so Darth Vader is a hugely frightening, scary, domineering antagonist, but we do find out his backstory. We do learn that, um, no spoilers, but it was Luke and Leia's father and that he had his own journey in arc and there's three films that address that. So, um, and as much as people criticize them, what I love about episodes one, two, and three is that they do give you more insight into his character. So then when you watch the originals, you understand him more. Um, and you're starting to see more where, character, uh, where authors are flipping in films and looking at the antagonist. Disney's Maleficent did that, where they looked at Maleficent and did a whole movie from her point of view. Um, and there have been quite a few books that have done the same thing. Wicked, uh, again, looks at the Wicked Witch of the, is it the West? East? I can't remember. But it's, um, you know, Wizard of Oz, but it's retelling the story from her point of view, the witch. So I think that's a really interesting exercise to think about. And I think when you're developing out characters, it's always good to look at um, what are their motivations, what are the things that have shaped them in their lives. Um, in my story, um, the religious contingent that runs my underwater colony, the 13th Continuum, um, they believe that what they're doing is right. They believe that it's saving their colony. They have, you know, that their religious beliefs are important. Um, you know, even if they're destroying the world that they live in, um, but they believe in what they're doing, and I think that's really important. What are some of the archetypes in YA novels, not just of the protagonist, which I, I hear is, is somehow she's the special girl. Yes. That for some reason, and she's yes. different from all the others and has some type of a special Skill power. Skill or power, yeah. So there are a lot of tropes that you'll see in YA, for better or worse. And yes, one of them is what um, you were just describing, which is that they're special in some way. They have some special gift or ability. Or sometimes you see that they live in a world where everyone else has abilities and they're the ones that don't. But there is usually um, something that makes them stand out in their world in some capacity. Um, and you see that a little bit more in the sci-fi fantasy genre um, of YA. Um, but yes, that's a classic trope. Um, the love triangle is another one. Um, and you know, I always think that people say, oh, this is young adult. I'm like, yeah, but it's also like classic, like storytelling, like this, these stories, Romeo and Juliet, you see that 400 million times. Romeo and Juliet has been told and retold and probably was taken from something even before Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. Um, so I think you see these things repeat a lot. Romeo and Juliet does pop up a lot in YA, right? Um, Star-crossed lovers, right? Twilight is basically uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet with vampires. Um, there's a book called uh, Warm, uh, I think it's called Warm Bodies. That is uh, Romeo and Juliet with zombies, and it was made into a film as well. So um, you see a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of times you'll also see, so these are coming of age stories, so usually they're being oppressed in some way. Um, it could be by parents or adults that rule the world. It could be by um, some greater antagonist. Um, but usually they're fighting the system or they're fighting against something about their world that isn't fair. Let's talk about other archetypes. So you have sort of the jock, oh, yeah. the, the hot jock who maybe seems like the dream guy, but then you have like the loner guy sure. that she's not supposed to be with because her friends don't approve, but she really likes the frenemy, yes. the nerdy girl that's the sidekick. Can we talk about some of the archetypes? 
Yeah, that's pretty typical. I mean, the nerdy girl, I mean, Hermione from uh, Harry Potter is your classic version of that. Um, you know, I think in terms of the jock and the um, nerdy guy, yeah, you're going to, you, you definitely still see that. Um, the Netflix show Stranger Things, which was really fantastic, 100% does that. But they do do a few things to subvert some of that where, you know, I think it's interesting to do turns with um, some of those jockey characters where maybe they see the light come around a little. Um, you know, and those stories, yeah, the high school, the hierarchy of school, um, that's going to be very prevalent across all these books, including the ones that aren't even in our world, like, you know, even things like Harry Potter, which I know skewed younger to start but moved into YA territory, or even things like Twilight. There's always the high school element and the hierarchy of the society. So, yeah, you see all of that as well, you know. Um, but I think it's kind of fun to read those things. And again, they're coming from somewhere, which is the real world. You know, like if we've all been to high school, like I feel like we've all had these experiences. Right. So it sounds like there's either the decision to leave the group or the decision to join the group and, and will they accept them? It's either mm -hmm. reverse mm -hmm. in, in one of those two ways. And is an adult always an oppressor? No, not always. No, usually no. they'll be, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll usually have also characters that are like, uh, you know, uh, nice, good adult characters, or at least I always try to write them um, in my, into my book. And um, one of the things that I did in my, uh, my series um, is that I did give point of views to adult characters. And that was actually one of the things that also, I think, made the book a challenge right off the bat to sell, um, even though we found a great publisher and I did get a great book deal out of it. But um, in the beginning, um, I got feedback, like, you have adult points of view in this book. Like, how is this YA? And I'm like, well, the main characters are teens. But yes, there are adults that live in this world. And I wanted to show also some of that perspective. Um, and some of the adults are the antagonists. Um, in the case of the first book, um, it's the leader of the religious contingent who kind of governs their world gets some chapters where we get to see sort of their thought process and what's happening on their um, end of the story. Um, and then otherwise we're going between Myra, who is a 16-year-old engineering apprentice in the underwater world and a, uh, a outer space colony where uh, our main character is Arrow, who is a 16-year-old soldier in their military society. And so um, the story is told back and forth between them. Um, and then as the book series progresses, my second book comes out in November, um, the story opens up a lot and we add more points of view. So we start to track more characters. Um, and some of those are adults. Um, we pick up um, an underwater character um, who is an adult character and he carries through. Um, so I think it's fun to write a variety of different perspectives. But no, some of the adult characters are always, you know, I hope, going to be positive too, you know. But you will say young adult, it is mostly focused on the kids and it is going to be mostly focused on the teen characters. So with young adult fiction, is one of the tests that it should be enjoyable to adults? That if it's not, then maybe a young adult readership would be bored because it's not sophisticated enough? That's a really great question. Um, I would say that um, kids tend to read up, which means that, you know, whatever the age range that we specify for these books, I find they tend to read up. Like, I was reading Stephen King and Anne Rice when I was in middle school and high school, um, but I probably started out reading things like Judy Bloom and things that skewed a little bit younger. Um, so yeah, I think it does need to have a certain level of sophistication um, to hold um, a teen audience now. Um, if it skews too old, I mean, my books are considered more crossover for some of the reasons I was talking about, that I have some adult points of view, that it is a third person, multiple point of view story. 
So when I was originally trying to sell it, we got a lot of feedback like, this is crossover. We don't know how to market it. And I was like, isn't that a good problem? Like, wouldn't, isn't it better if it appeals to both teens and adults? But so the publishing industry, I think, has been a little slow to catch up to this idea that a lot of adults are reading young adult um, and that teen readers do tend to read up. Um, so I think they're a little behind in understanding that. Um, but uh, I think that it's a real benefit if the book is a little more sophisticated, if it is appealing both to teens and adults. Um, but yeah, I think you need to keep their attention. Um, another thing that I think is important, which we've really tried to do with my series, is to put the books out in a relatively quick time frame. Because also readers, they will grow out of reading something. So if you have multiple years between books coming out, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Because, you know, by the time the second book comes out, they're already in college, right? And then the third book, who knows? Um, so we're trying to do six months apart on my trilogy because I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there a focus group that you're running the, let's say, semi-edited version through? Um, oh, I don't really have a focus group. I mean, I think that when you first start writing, um, a lot of authors have critique partners, um, which are really important to the process, which would be um, trusted readers that you trust to uh, give feedback on your manuscript. Um, I have another author that um, I trade books with, and he writes stuff totally different from me. It's uh, you, Typically these days, it's uh, nonfiction, World War II, Nazi books. Um, you know, so they're totally different, but he's really smart, and um, we trade reads. Um, now that I have a publishing deal and I have a big agent team, um, I don't do that as much and I don't really have the time. So my team is the people who are reading and giving feedback are my agent and my editors at um, my publishing house. So, and at this point I'm really tailoring the books to them because that's who's really going to be um, distributing my book. And then I'm also um, at this point trying to keep a consistency in the story and I kind of know where I am and how I'm writing it so I'm not at a place where I need feedback so much on how I'm writing, if that makes sense. In the beginning, a lot of it is trying to improve your craft. Um, I'm at a point now where I'm just trying to tell the best stories that I can because I, you know, I already have a style that I've developed in terms of how I write. Um, so, but I am looking forward to getting back to writing something different and new, um, and I'm sure I'll be using um, critique partners on that once I start writing my next book. Let's take the hypothetical author that's just written their first novel and mm -hmm. now they're looking for an agent. Mm -hmm. What steps should they take? How committed to that book should they be? How free should they be to say, maybe this isn't the one? Yeah, I mean, I think you always, I mean, I think it's always worth, at the time when you write your first book, you'll be so attached to it and so in love with it that it will be heartbreaking if you don't get agented or if it doesn't sell, even though that's really typical. Um, my advice is always, once you start the querying process, is to start writing your next book. So you have something else that you're focused on and you know that it's not the end of the road. Um, and a lot of times it might take an author several books before they find an agent. That is not um, uncommon. Um, the things I really recommend um, are workshopping a lot, um, taking classes like the ones I teach at the Writing Pad, which have a workshop component, um, or I, um, I workshop the book that I sold, The 13th Continuum, with um, Meg Wallitzer, who's one of my favorite authors. Um, I also workshopped with Victor Laval, who's another one of my favorite authors. Um, and I would go to conferences and try to meet people and it just improved my writing. Um, for the querying process, um, it really is finding the agents that you think are the best fit for your material, who are open to submissions, and then really following their guidelines. Um, writing a great query letter, spending a lot of time getting that perfect, 
Um, and then, yes, going through the process. Publishing moves very slowly. So it can be months and months and months process of even just hearing back from one person. Um, and then once you're going on submission, it can also be months and months and months and months because they get inundated with so much material. So I think that the best way to handle it is to then also be working on something for yourself otherwise. So you have something ready to go. If an agent comes back to you and says, hey, I really like your book, but I'm not sure I can sell this, but I'd love to see what you do next. So then you have something to say, hey, I'm going to be doing this next, and you can come back to them. So for the query letter, did you have a template that you found that you just kind of changed the names and dates and things like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, not to that extent. I mean, there is there are good websites online that will show the format. So the format is something you really want to follow and stick to. Um, although I, you know, I don't think you can really do just like changing things because a lot of it is like writing that really hooky elevator pitch. You know, making sure you have a great bio ready to go. You know, that's you know concise and descriptive. Um, because, you know, when they're looking at your query letter, that's the first example of can you write well. And so your query letter really needs to be written well. And I also think ideally in a tone that really reflects your book, which is to say, especially the synopsis, like, you know, if your book is really kind of snappy and witty, then your synopsis probably should be somewhat in the same vein to convey that. Um, and then in terms of um, personalizing it, I think it really is worthwhile um, when you're querying agents to personalize to them, which is to show some knowledge about um, what books they've represented, um, what types of genres they like. If you were a big fan, like my agent had sold The Devil Wears Prada, which I absolutely loved, you know, let them know that you loved this book and that this you're coming to them because you've been, you know, you know who they are. You know who their agency is. Um, I think if you personalize, um, and even better if you have a personal connection or some way, like you've been at a conference where they spoke even. It doesn't even have to be that you knew them, but I saw you on X panel at the AWP conference and I was really impressed, and so I am coming to you. So I think that those things all help a lot, but a lot of it is, it's just like um, an editor friend of mine who used to work at HarperCollins, she told me in the beginning, she's like, it's like dating. She's like, you're gonna go on a lot of dates. Um, and I think that's really accurate, because you really are looking for the right fit with an agent. Um, being unagented is actually better than being with a bad agent. And it doesn't seem like that would be the case, but it is. Someone who isn't a good fit for you or isn't doing your work um, justice um, can actually do more damage than just not even having an agent. So I just think it's very important to make sure that it is the right fit um, for your material, for you, because they really need to be your cheerleader. Like they really are the person that's going to be helping you through the crazy process of trying to find a publisher. And um, ideally, I think also to find someone who's in it for the long haul, who's going to stay with you when your first book doesn't sell, because that's so common, who's going to be there for your next book, and who will still represent you when you uh, switch genres and go back and say, hey, uh, I'm writing YA sci-fi now. Can we still do this? Um, I was very lucky that my agent has been amazing and has really stuck by me through the whole process. Um, you know, and she's responsive, like responds to my emails right away. I know a lot of people will struggle with that sometimes. If your agent is not getting back to you, yeah, I think that's a real problem. So, you know, I think it's really important to try to find the right person. Can you give some other hypotheticals of, of how being sort of unagented might be better than being with the wrong parent? Yeah, there are a bunch of different ways. Um, when I used to go um, and speak, either meet with or speak with some pretty well-known authors, um, they used to say things like, oh, you know, um, I'm so glad that my first book didn't sell in retrospect. 
And it's really hard to see that at the time because it will be heartbreaking. Um, but I was hanging out with um, Andre Dubus, who wrote The House of Sand and Fog, which is a best-selling book. He's been on Oprah. Um, and his dad was like the biggest short story author ever. Um, so the guy had connections. But I believe I asked him, um, the first book that you sold, how many had you written? And I think he said three or four. It was quite a few. And this is a guy who actually had uh, publishing connections um, and you know a writing degree and all those fancy things. Um, and the thing about it is that you know when you're first writing you're really developing your craft and you get better so a lot of times maybe the first thing you write isn't quite in the sweet spot of what you're supposed to be writing and a lot of times you'll look back and be like oh wow i really was undeveloped it really is better that this is the stage where i sold a book and um, being an author is a little different from some other uh, creative professions because you don't really age out of it to the same degree. I mean, sure, you know, publishing loves the young 22-year-old who has a hit book like Veronica Roth who wrote Divergent. Yeah, they love that narrative, but a lot of times authors are going to write their best work when they get older. 30, 40, 50, 60. I mean, um, Frank McCourt who wrote Angela's Ashes, I think he wrote that when he was 50 or 60. It's one of my favorite memoirs of all time. Um, a lot of my favorite authors who are still producing work are not young people. Ursula Le Guin. Ursula K. Le Guin's amazing. I'm obsessed with Stephen King. I think he's a genius and I still read all of his books and he's still publishing a ton. I still read Anne Rice. Um, but then there's other people. I know Philip Roth retired, but only recently. I mean, he was writing books up until a couple of years ago. So, and I think a lot of times they're producing their best work. Like Cormac McCarthy, I think, is writing some of his best books within the last 10 years, and he is not a young man. Um, so I think that we develop over the course of our writing careers. And I like to look at it as, you know, I hope to write many, many, many books, and I hope to get better as I do so. So really kind of cultivating that. Writing style versus voice. Mm, what yeah. are the differences? Yeah, well, I always talk. Well, I always talk. What is the difference between character and voice? So a character is someone in a story, and they're going to have a voice, which is going to be a way that they talk. Um, but then the overarching voice of a story is, you know, more about the way that it's told, like the style and the voice in terms of the writing. Um, and sometimes that is also the character's voice, especially if you're writing in first person or third person close, because you're trying to encapsulate what they see and feel. Um, and then um, what was the other thing you asked about? Oh yeah, so writing style. And style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they kind of overlap a little bit. I mean, the style of writing and the voice. Um, voice is really trying to capture the feeling of the, the narrator's voice or the character's voice or the way the story is told. The style of it, um, I guess, would be more like the way that you're writing the book. But um, there's a lot of overlap between all three of those areas. Um, but when you pick up a book that has really strong voice, you know, you're usually hearing the character and hearing the world. Um, and every book exists within its own world, even books that aren't specifically sci-fi fantasy, you're still crafting a world, um, even if it's something like a thriller, it has a feel and an internal logic to the world, uh, and it's not necessarily the real world, even if it is a contemporary story. Um, something like Gone Girl exists in its own world. I don't think those people exist in the real world. Um, those characters, to me, are very unrealistic in a lot of respects, but in the world of that story, they're all like that. And um, so I don't think that that's like a real world thing, even though it takes place here and now, but um, there is a specific way that she writes her stories um, and that, you know, she transports you into them. Right. Um, hooking in the reader from the beginning, mm -hmm. how is, I, I'm sure that's going to vary, especially within the YA 
world and the different genres that there are, whether it's science fiction, whether it's steampunk, whatever. Yeah, oh yeah, steampunk, oh fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think hooking the reader is just so important regardless of what you're writing. Um, I just think, you know, for me, if I'm not really feeling a book 50, and I don't put a lot of books down, but 50, 100 pages is a long time, and if I'm not feeling it, and you'd be surprised how many books I think don't really work on that level, um, I may not finish it. And especially when you're dealing with um, more commercial genres, it becomes even more important younger readers, I think it becomes even more important. Um, that said, I don't think you need to rush or sacrifice um, the storytelling to make it so hooky um, in a certain respect. Like I personally wouldn't want to do that, but I think getting into the story right away, having something exciting happen in the beginning. Um, in my book, I chose to write a prologue that showed kind of what happened before um, when the surface of the earth was destroyed. So I told it from, um, if you can imagine the president's daughter's point of view as they're evacuating the White House. Oh, wow. So young girl being evacuated. Um, and I, cause I did that in, for a couple reasons, but one was I wanted to have something really exciting and really relatable that happened right off the bat because I think that that will hook you in and make you wanna read more. But there's other ways to hook somebody, like having a great character. Um, having um, central mystery is something I teach about a lot, which is, um, it doesn't mean that it has to, obviously there's a mystery genre where the whole story is crafted around a mystery, but that said, you can have a story that has smaller mysteries that are revealed in the beginning of a book. Um, a good example is in The Hunger Games. Um, they talk about the reaping, which is the big thing that happens right away in The Hunger Games, um, but they say the word the reaping seven or eight times before they finally tell you what it is. And you find out fairly early in the story, but still you're kind of reading like, oh, what is this? What is this thing that's happening? What is this big event? So I think that's another way to kind of get somebody interested in trying to figure out what's going on. Too much conflict, too little conflict. Do YA readers want more conflict than maybe adult readers? I think that you have more leeway to do some bigger, kind of more epic sweeping sorts of things like what you would see in a Star Wars movie, for example. Um, you know, too little conflict in any story or too little tension and the story's going to be really boring and nobody's going to be interested. I think you need to have conflict and tension almost, if not in every scene of your book, pretty much in every scene. Even scenes that are character driven, I always think you want to look for how can you uh, ramp up the tension in that, even if it's just a dialogue exchange. You try to have um, moments that are ratcheting up the tension. So a good example of that is something like in the beginning of The Shining, the movie. I also love the book, but the film, um, there's a scene where it's um, the mom talking to Child Protective Services. So you're learning information about the fact that the father may have been abusive towards the son, but it's just a dialogue scene. But the whole time she's smoking a cigarette and the ash just gets longer and longer and you're like oh my god ash your cigarette you get so tense for her you're like that's gonna fall all over you and she doesn't and it just somehow is this genius way of just keeping tension so there's always little things you can look at in a scene to kind of keep the tension going and then obviously there's big conflict scenes where there's a fight or actually something major happening or a major obstacle um, but i think throughout a story um, that's what keeps you reading and people even be like oh it's getting worse it's getting so much worse for these characters and you know um, or even like a book series like Game of Thrones, you're like, oh my God, things are still happening and happening, but it's like, that's what keeps the story going. You know, a, a story without conflict is a really boring story. I think Kurt Vonnegut famously said, make uh, great characters and then make bad things happen to them. Well, if a book is not part of a series, let's suppose it's just going to be a standalone book, 
Is the protagonist always victorious in the end? No, and I think even in a, um, and you see that a lot, especially um, my book's considered dystopian, you see that a lot in dystopian series um, where uh, a lot of times um, they're not victorious. And I always, um, when I teach structure, I talk about that where, you know, there's going to be a moment at the end of a story where a character makes a decision. They need to make a choice that really reveals their moral caliber. But that doesn't mean that the choice they make has to be the right one. Um, a good example is Romeo and Juliet, right? Romeo does make a choice at the end, and it is a terrible choice. Um, it ends tragically for him. Um, he made the wrong decision. Um, so no, it doesn't always have to result in a happy ending. Um, and I think some of the greatest stories um, sometimes don't. That said, I think if you are going to go for a really kind of, uh, I call it a negative ending, but a, an ending where the protagonist is not victorious, um, it makes your job so much harder in a lot of ways. I think you really need to pull that off because your readers are probably going to be a little bit mad at you to a certain extent. Um, so I think it needs to have a compelling reason to have that sort of ending or um, you know, a compelling reason why you wanted to do that for your story. Um, because we've all been there where we've seen something with an, with an ending that we were like, oh wow, that was really dark. And like sometimes I love it. And even in films where you know classically a lot of that is focused, group tested out of the film, um, but films like I Am Legend or um, the third Terminator film where like something really dark happens at the end, but then it's awesome. And of course, if you get into more like horror movies and things like that, then it's almost expected. Um, because a lot of times in those, the antagonist becomes the protagonist. So when we were watching Nightmare on Elm Street, right, okay, originally, yeah, maybe we're rooting for Johnny Depp and the teens, but at a certain point, Freddy is the, who we're rooting for. At a certain point, you're showing up at these films to see Michael Myers or, you know, Leatherface or whoever, Pinhead, I'm a huge Hellraiser fan, but you're showing up for them more so almost than who are the classic protagonists and you kind of want to see them win in the end. And boy, would you be upset if Freddy was dead at the end. I know, Freddy's dead as a movie, but he's not really dead. <laughs> the ideal length of a YA novel, word count, oh. what's the typical length? And then if you stretch it, what's to be expected? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And that's something I obsessed about when I was writing, because I write long books. I tend to always write very long. So um, I know other people struggle with uh, writing shorter and their word counts being low. Um, I would say the sweet spot, at least in my opinion, is somewhere between 75,000 and 85,000 words um, for contemporary YA, which would be a story told in the here and now. Um, you will see books that are shorter, so I think you get away with even 65,000 words. Um, or obviously longer than that. Um, if you start to go above 100,000 words, um, and my book definitely does, and they do, the first book I believe is somewhere in the 105,000 word range, which is comparable to something like Hunger Games. Um, and as the series progresses, where you will get more leeway on word count, um, they do span upwards. I'm looking at closer to 120,000 on the third book. Um, but like I said, when you're doing big world-building genre books, sci-fi fantasy, um, you do get more leeway on word count regardless of genre. So um, you can get away with something that is over 100,000 words. Um, if you've never sold a book before and you're going on submission, I would caution um, you against um, doing anything that's too much longer than 100, 105,000 because that's a pretty hefty book. But that said, I mean, everyone 
you know, has sold things that, you know, are of different lengths. And, you know, I always think that the word count should justify, be justified by the story. So um, I did learn that when you write multiple POVs, that will balloon, balloon your word count. So um, that's why Game of Thrones is so long. I have a lot of empathy for uh, George R.R. R. Martin, but there's a reason why his books are spanning over a thousand pages, you know, because once he starts telling all those multiple stories, it really is going to expand it. So, but yeah, but so the sweet spot of word count is going to be somewhere in those ranges. Let's talk about the new author that has an agent and now has landed a, a publishing deal. What should they expect? What should they maybe not hold so tightly, be very flexible with, and maybe things that they should fight for? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, going to vary a little bit from author to author and publishing house to publishing house. Um, I know people have had horror stories and terrible experiences, um, and I know people have had great ones. Uh, I have actually had a fantastic experience with my publishing house, and going into it, I wasn't sure because I had heard um, so many stories from other authors that weren't always positive, so I didn't really know um, what to expect. Um, in terms of what to hold on to and what not to, um, I, you know, I always try not to be too precious about my work that I can't take notes um, from an editor. And I just always try to remember that they're on your team and they're trying to make your work better. Of course, I think it's important also to um, hold fast to things that are really important to you. So if someone's trying to alter something about your story um, that it just goes against what you really believe, you know, you can fight for that. Um, but ideally, you're getting into bed with an editor that really gets your work. Um, I think some of the problems come from um, getting into bed with a publishing house or an editor where they want you to be something different than what you see for yourself and for your book. Um, so being on the same page right off the bat will help. Um, in terms of being not too precious, well, I mean, cover design is a big one. Um, I was lucky enough that my agent got me approval, which I don't think is that common always. Um, so I had some control over the process, but I also didn't have to use it because I loved the book cover. Oh, let's see it. Okay. Yeah, I loved it right off the bat. It was exactly, it was so beautiful. It was exactly something. So I didn't actually have to use my approval. Um, but, you know, and I've heard even things, stories like um, that Barnes & Noble can um, get publishers to change book covers to what they want. Um, which is kind of wild that they have that much control sometimes. Um, and I know people sometimes are frustrated by that. Um, in terms of what to be precious about or not, I think when you're coming into marketing and release, um, I think that, you know, there's going to be some reviews that probably aren't going to be uniformly positive. Um, and that can be from a magazine or a trade publication or a blogger. It can also just be from a random reader on Goodreads. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, maybe not taking those seriously, just understanding that, different readers are going to like books or not like books and that isn't a reflection on the quality of what you did. You know, not every book is for every reader and I think that you just kind of being okay with that, you know, and not because, you know, it's very easy to feel bad or get hung up on uh, negative reviews and, you know, you just don't know what was going through the reviewer's mind. Maybe they just don't like books that are in that genre. Maybe who, who even knows? So just kind of not taking any of that stuff too seriously. Um, but I do advocate um, authors take an active role in marketing their books. I think too many um, authors will sign a deal and then kind of sit back and expect their publishing house to do everything. And the truth is that they're stretched very thin. They have so many titles. A lot of times if you're a new author and your book isn't the big superstar book that they're promoting that time, you might not get a lot of resources or attention. So then it becomes your job to really kind of advocate and really kind of work for your book, so. Can we go into some of the more technical parts of selling the book? 
Yeah, so um, basically once you go on submission, and this is applying to uh, having an agent and approaching traditional publishing houses, um, you know, your agent is going to be sending your book to different editors that they've identified that they think the book could be appropriate for. So then it's kind of a lot of hurry up and wait. Like the book goes out, you know, and then maybe you're lucky and your book sells at auction for a bazillion dollars and you're set. But for most books, it's going to take a number of months for those editors who are getting so many submissions. Um, to even get back to you. And then also, it's not, when I first went into it, I was like, oh, it's whether or not they, you know, you wrote a great book. That is not what has to do with whether your book sells. Writing a great book is what gets you through those door steps and gets you agented. Like, you've gone through the hurdles. You wrote a great book, but now it's a business. So it's about, you know, what is that publishing house looking for for their list? What do they think is selling? What do they think they can market? And that has nothing to do with the quality of your book. That has everything to do with the business, which you can't predict or control. So um, once that process happens, ideally you're gonna get an offer or multiple offers and you're gonna sell your book. So once that happens, um, in my case, I had a three book deal for the series. So you have deadlines um, for the subsequent books and then you basically send off your manuscript. Um, that manuscript goes to your editor. Your editor then is going to go through a revision process with you. Um, in my case, I did not have to do a lot of developmental edits, but that could be an example where there are bigger things in the story that they want you to address or change. Um, and then after that, you'll go through a line edit, which is where your editor will mark up your draft line by line. Um, with notes and um, I always try to think oh this makes the book a lot better I love having a lot of eyes on my material so that's a whole other pass and then after line edits you go to copy edits and copy edits are uh, grammar things um, also tracking you know if like a, you know a character suddenly changes names halfway through your book which really shouldn't happen ideally you don't have that but you know that kind of stuff um, looking at um, do, do things make sense um, so kind of more of a technical pass and then after that the book gets set into a typeset which is what it will look like on the page and then even then you can go through it and still make adjustments and changes but each time it's less and less and more specific and more specific. Um, so there are a lot of passes just on the editorial aspect of getting your book ready uh, for publication. Presenting oneself as an author, do's and don'ts, bios, mm -hmm. how much do you engage with your readership? Um, yeah, I mean, that's all really good questions. I mean, I think it's so thrilling to have readers. I love having readers. Usually when you're writing for so long, you're like, oh my God, I'm writing these weird stories and like nobody else knows what they are and I'm obsessed with them. And so when it starts to go out in the world and you have people who actually know about your characters and want to talk to you, I think it's the best thing in the world. So I tend to engage as much as I can. Um, I think now it's really um, important to have a digital component to everything that you do. So as a new author, you have to have a website, I swear you have to have a great website um, and ideally on that some contact information obviously if you become so popular that's overwhelming that's another thing to address but usually most of us it's not overwhelming to have be reachable be accessible um, so having a great website having a great bio I think is incredibly important because you end up using that so much for so many things um, you know setting up your Amazon page setting up your Goodreads author page um, Facebook Facebook page Twitter Instagram, like you kind of have to decide how many different outlets you really think you can handle. But, you know, it's important to have a presence on a lot of these places. And then also, I think that helps with finding a community of other authors that are writing things similar to yours. Um, there are a lot of incredible Facebook groups that I'm in that have been um, just so important to what I do. 
So um, I think having that digital presence is really important. Having a great summary of your book is really important. That's something that will go to your agent originally when they go on submission. It's something that will go to your publishing house to help them even with the back cover copy um, sometimes. So it's really important to have all those things. Oh, and a good headshot. <laughs> You'd be surprised um, how much, because you need that for the book itself, but then also for your website and for like 100 things, speaking engagements, panels. So having a headshot actually is really important. Writing every day, is this a myth or a must for an author? I think it's kind of a must. I mean, I think that, you know, we go through different periods where we're incubating ideas or working on ideas. Um, the thing I think about with having a regular writing practice is that it gets you into um, the mode of producing pages all the time. And then I think also for me, when I work into a story, I'm like in the world of the story and I'm always kind of walking around a little bit in that world. And so it's a much more seamless process when I go to sit down to work. Um, if I take a few days off and then go back, it takes time to work back into the story for me. So I lose time just by having been out of it and then coming back in. So I think writing every day will help with that because it keeps you in the story and keeps you moving through it. Um, I also always say, you know, it's amazing how the amount of time you spend writing, you actually equals more pages. It's not like people think there's some crazy formula to it. I'm like, no, it really is time in equals time out. You know, um, and yeah, you know, some days are gonna be better writing days than others. So it's not to say that every day you sit down, you're gonna have this amazing output. Um, some writers have word counts that they like to do per day. I have never done that um, for myself. Um, a lot of times it's more just giving yourself permission to write what we call, I won't say, the crappy first draft or the bad first draft. Um, so you kind of free yourself from the perfectionism that sometimes is really what writer's block is. Writer's block is really, um, feeling the perfectionism and thinking that writing will be not as good as what you want it to be. Um, and once the fear of not writing overwhelms um, that, then that's usually when we start writing. So giving yourself permission to write something that isn't as good as you really want it to be on the first pass. And then a lot of times sitting down and saying, you know, it's okay, you can write a paragraph, that's okay. And then usually once I write a paragraph, I'll be in it and be writing away. Um, but saying like, you know, because if you sit down, you're like, I have to write 10 pages. That can get overwhelming in and of itself because that's a lot of pages. So just kind of like being a little bit flexible in how much you're really putting out. But yeah, I would say writing every day is, is somewhat important. And where do you write? Where do you do your best writing? Um, you know, it started out where I would write at home most of the time, but now I kind of call it the great coffee shop rotation, um, which is to say I move around to a lot of different coffee shops, um, but I might have two shifts where one is a coffee shop and then I come home and work more, especially when I'm under uh, a very crazy deadline like I am right now. Um, and there's other writers that I know at a lot of these coffee shops that so becomes kind of a community, you know, and some of them are screenwriters or doing different types of things. Um, so, you know, I have my friends that I see and it's a little bit like going to an office. Um, you know, with being home a lot, which, you know, some people do do their best work at home, it can get a little bit where you get distracted because it's like the hundred things you need to do, like unload the dishwasher, make the bed, like do this, do that. And so leaving the house kind of gets you away from all of that, plus coffee, good coffee. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of where I kind of do it now. And then I do things like um, my parents live in Virginia in the country, so sometimes I'll go out there for a couple weeks. Um, and, and, and take it like a working kind of retreat. Um, I also try to go on a lot of um, workshops and residencies. So I did one in Tuscany last year, and I'm actually going um, to Provence to work with some writers. 
at Julia Child's old house. It's cooking and writing retreat. Yeah. But um, I find that sometimes the travel and then being around other authors is really conducive to creativity. Plus, you're getting feedback and you're getting, you know, uh, workshopping. So that aspect is nice too. So I always try to do stuff like that. And how? Do you write on a laptop? Do you use just a, a legal pad? Oh yeah, I write on a laptop, um, I um, for sure, and I use Word, but I want to learn Scrivener, even though I hear there's a learning curve and I'm scared. Um, Scrivener is software that a lot of authors swear by and use. Um, and then I write on a laptop, um, but I do have a little notebook I carry where I'll scribble down ideas. Um, also, I mean, it depends on what stage of the writing I'm in, but when I'm drafting a story, um, I'll have a lot of ideas that pop up in the middle of the night or in the shower or when I'm walking. Um, so I end up emailing myself like a lot of notes, like, or even sometimes I'll, I'll sketch out whole scenes on my uh, cell phone, when, especially if I'm not at home or with my computer, just like, oh, here's what I'm thinking. I'll be like, and then so I'll email that to myself and then I'll have it um, because, you know, inspiration pops up at all hours of the day and the night. So your debut novel, The 13th Continuum, sold. And then at some point you have now a three book deal, which is that was the first book of the three. And now it's being turned into a film. Yeah, we're working on that. So my background is that I used to uh, work in film and uh, TV development, and so uh, actually before I even sold it to a publisher, I had uh, producers that were working on it. Um, it's always um, had a lot of interest from a lot of producers. Um, the first set of producers wanted to do it for TV, and we're sort of working with them, but at a certain point, um, they weren't being super effective, and we kind of felt more like going in the film direction, so I switched to a different producer, um, and uh, she's been great, um, and we're working on packaging it into a film, so um, they have a deal at Warner Brothers, and then um, right now we're looking at writers and directors because um, in the environment uh, of right now, um, it really helps to have a package and to go in with a package. And there are a couple of reasons why I think that's good. But one of them is that I don't want to rush and do a bad version of the film. Um, I've worked enough in Hollywood and worked on enough big book adaptations like Lord of the Rings and The Golden Compass that I know it really matters um, how you put it together. And then also, it's one thing just to option a book. Um, you could do that, but then there's something we call development hell where um, it just kind of gets stuck and never gets made. So the more you have attached and the more you go in with, the more likely it is that you're going to actually be able to make the film. Because um, I don't want to just option it and have it sit. And there are so many fabulous books and fabulously popular books that have never been made that sold for a lot of money that studios have. Um, things like Justin Cronin's The Passage is a good example, and it just hasn't been made. It's been years and years. Um, so I kind of want to do it in a way that really does justice. So I'm not really in a rush. I want to do it right. Well, so the second book is coming out November 1st. Yes. And tell me the title again. It's called Return of the Continuums. Okay, and then you have the third book, which you're finishing up now yes. as we speak. I'm know, finishing uh -huh. it up now, and that will come out in um, probably end of May next year, and it's called The United Continuums. So um, that's the other thing that's nice about a series is that with each book is an opportunity um, and really kind of drives attention and drives readership, and there's a whole marketing effort. So it's kind of nice because you know you don't have one book and it kind of gets forgotten or left behind. Um, each time you're going out with a new book, it's bringing them all kind of 
together. And you see a lot of times these things build over time. Uh, readership builds, popularity builds, um, and we can all cite really famous series where they weren't big until later. Um, I, there's a great piece by the author who wrote um, Percy Jackson, that series, which were made into films. And um, I think he said it was two full years after the first book came out was when they first had an inkling that it was going to be a huge, huge hit. But for two years, it wasn't selling much. They weren't sure. He was doing signings, like nobody was showing up. Um, but it was a building process. Like they really believed in it and they really worked hard. Um, so it can take time. Um, and the other thing to remember with a book, and I'm sort of experiencing this now, is that it's not like a film where you know everyone will go opening day and see it and then be talking to their friends. Like, you know, even if people buy it close to when it comes out, it might not get read instantly. A lot of us, and this includes me, have a ton of books in our queue and a lot of things. It doesn't mean we're not gonna read it, but it might be a month or two later that I finally do. And so you start to see that even a couple months after it's been out, people are finally like, oh my gosh, I finally read this. And you start to hear, and all of a sudden more people you start to hear. So it's like not like an opening day phenomenon. Um, and the other cool thing about books is they exist and once they're in the world, they're in the world a long time. So you start to see them popping up in libraries and popping up. Um, that's the nice thing about young adult is that you know libraries are huge for us. Schools are huge for us. School libraries are huge for us. And there's also a lot of kids that can't really afford or don't have the budgets to buy a lot of books, so they're waiting to get them from their library, which I think is fantastic. I was that kid, so I totally understand that. When you first began writing The 13th Continuum, was it in your mind to turn this into a film to turn this into a series or did this come in incremental steps? Yeah, it was in my mind from the beginning for sure that it had to be a trilogy. Um, the story, once it started to take shape in my mind, was so epic and sweeping and it involved multiple different environments that I kind of felt strongly that it needed to be a series. Um, and also that I wanted to play the long game a little bit with the series, which means that um, Certain reveals don't happen even till second or third book, um, which is a little bit risky actually because it's harder to land a deal for multiple books all at once. Um, also, my main protagonists, like they kind of aren't really meeting in person until the second book and quite into it. So that, that was a big risk I took, but I took it because I really believed in the story I was telling. Um, in terms of the film aspect, I do write very visually um, and I do write in a way that is um, pretty adaptable. And this series in particular, because um, it's big world building science fiction with teen protagonists, um, Hollywood has changed a lot, especially even since I started working in it. Um, and so the types of films they make have become more narrow, um, but this slots right into what they still make, um, which is the big genre films that could be a temple. So that's one of the reasons why we feel that this could be appropriate for film, even though you know, TV is still on the table because TV is such a rich landscape right now um, and lots of books are being adapted into television shows. Um, so you're seeing kind of this real shift in where uh, people are viewing and consuming content. Um, we're kind of in a very uh, changing time. I call it the wild, wild west of media, of publishing. So um, we'll see what comes to pass. How much did you working in film previously, you know, coming to LA, having that as your degree, help in seeing the bigger picture that if you had really started out with say an MFA and, and writing or something, maybe would have made it more myopic. 
Yeah, it would. I mean, I think MFA, and I, I went back and forth a lot about whether or not I needed one at a certain point in my life, and um, they're very expensive typically. Yes, there are some that are funded. Those are incredibly difficult to get into, but for the most part, you're going to be going into debt, you know, most authors do, and then being an author isn't typically that lucrative um, for a variety of reasons. So you kind of end up in a hole and you know a lot of people with MFAs end up teaching. Um, that kind of ends up being what their job is and if you teach too much it can be hard to write your own work. Um, the other thing that happens with MFA is they uh, they largely teach to short story which uh, not many people read short stories. is not. Um, that's why you see a lot of people coming out of those programs might publish a short story collection right off the bat. Uh, if they're lucky. Um, and then also they tend not to be so welcoming to young adult writers and also to people who write genre like myself. There are exceptions to that. Uh, Holland's College has a great program for children's writers. Uh, I believe uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts has a great program. But for the most part, we are not really going to be getting into the Iowa Writers Workshop. So um, it's a little bit of a different process. But I think also not having that, I think some people with MFAs, it, it's a little intimidating. They come out of school and they're like oh my gosh I have to write like you know like these great these great authors and you know as opposed to just really developing what you want to write in your story um, the film background was interesting because I think it did shape how I consume and understand stories um, it also um, I write very structurally and very visually because um, a lot of my job was working on screenplays with uh, writers and I worked on a lot of adaptations and screenplays are incredibly structural uh, first act, second act, midpoint break, third act, and they really have to slot into a certain page count to even really be considered. Um, so I really kind of look at structure a lot when I'm writing a novel and I think about that a lot. And I think, you know, there is a lot of uh, translation between the way these stories are told. What do you plan as the process once you finish the third book, which will be in May of next year? You're looking for a writer-director? Yes, a writer and or a director. I mean, sometimes a writer-director. Um, in my experience working in development, um, having a director who has a vision for how they want to translate something to screen is the single most important aspect of um, any movie making. It's the single most determining aspect of whether the film will be any good. It's always the filmmaker. Um, yes, screenwriters matter. Of course they matter. Um, but they're not the ultimate architects of the film. It really is the director. So um, that's kind of the difference between um, novels and, and movies is that, you know, you write a script, it's going to go through a lot of filters, a lot of hands, a lot of lenses, often a lot of writers. Um, usually the person who writes the first draft of the script or the first drafts often is not the person that writes through uh, the movie going into production. A lot of times there's multiple writers. Um, so what I really would like is to find a director that really gets it and has a vision for how it should be told as a film um, and is willing to take creative license to really adapt it well. Because a lot of times what works in a book isn't gonna work as well on screen. Um, and there's a lot of world building that gets opened up in the second and third books. And so some of that might need to go into the first movie. So um, just kind of looking at it, um, and I am open to adapting it myself, but I actually would prefer to have someone else come in and do it because I think it's very difficult for authors, um, we're so close to our material, um, to have perspective to really do a good job with the screenplay. I think it's better sometimes to have someone with an outsider set of eyes to come in and really kind of shape the material. So uh, yeah, so we're kind of out to different writers and directors and looking for someone to come in. Um, and I just want that meeting where it's like someone who has the passion and the vision. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not in a rush to do a deal with someone. It doesn't feel right. So I just want to do it in a way that feels good and where we're going to do something great. 
That's interesting that you that you actually want to hand it off to someone else. Do you think that from your prior yes. working that you saw too many people that were close with great intentions and it didn't turn out? Yeah, that, uh -huh. I think that that's pretty accurate. And mm -hmm. even now, even just as a consumer, when I go to see films, um, there are certain uh, books that have been adapted by the authors. And a lot of the time, I think they might have benefited from someone else coming in. And I don't know if that's a popular opinion or not, but Gone Girl is a good example. I actually think that that might have benefited from someone else really working on that script. I mean, you can't say it's all hypothetical, but yeah, that's part of it. And it's also like from a spend time, I would almost rather spend time writing additional books as opposed to working on a screenplay where there's gonna be a lot of notes, a lot of changes, and ultimately I'm not the architect of it. Um, yeah, and it's also a little bit of, you know, I'm not in a rush to get this done in a way that doesn't feel right. I've been in development and I've seen it for so long um, and it makes me more realistic about the process. Like a lot of people think, oh my God, I got an option deal or I got this and like now I'm going to be at the premiere and like, oh my gosh, that does not at all mean your movie's going to be made. And uh, even if it is, it could be so long from now. Um, you know, it's a long process. And also you're looking at a big budget. Like that's the other thing that happens with um, the kind of stuff that I'm writing. Um, it can't be made for a low budget, right? We're talking something 60 to 80 million at the minimum. So that requires a huge investment on someone's part, if you think about it. Um, so I'm just much more realistic about the process because of my experience. Um, Jennifer, any advice to authors who are hoping to turn their books into movies? Yeah, I have actually quite a few thoughts on that. Um, one of my main thoughts is that um, figuring out what is the appropriate way to tell your book into a story. So sometimes it's going to be more appropriate for film. And as mentioned, if your book is not like a pretty sweeping kind of tentpole sort of movie, um, you're going to have a hard time selling that to a major movie studio right now based on the types of material they're actually making. They're not really doing many mid-range films anymore. Um, the flip side of that is if it could be made for a very good price, micro-budget or low-budget, then you're going to have probably some options for film. Um, but I think TV is really worth considering now and how it would slot in. Um, in terms of how to position it for that, um, again, you know, getting a good film agent, film TV agent to represent the rights is really important. Um, and like I said, I think having a vision for what it's going to be. Is it like Star Wars? Is it like, you know, something that's on TV? Stranger Things was a huge hit on Netflix. Is it something like that? Like what is the way that you position the material could help with finding the right audience for it and figuring out what it looks like? It's kind of the same as pitching it to a publishing house. Like what is your book like? What kind of film will it make? So you have your literary agent, yes. but then you're also looking yes. for... A film and television representative? Yes. So that's that a work? whole process. So I actually think I have, uh, I think I have four agents actually um, that represent me right now. And so um, they did all come through my book agent. So getting, a, so if you have a book agent, they should be able to help you, especially if you have interest, which in my case I did, I had interest from producers. So they should be able to help set you up with a film and TV agent. Um, and so I am at ICM with Josie Friedman, who's amazing and who I had done deals with and seen her represent. Uh, ICM has one of the best book departments in the business. Um, they represent a lot of huge authors, so uh, I'm thrilled to be with her and to be represented by them. And so she handles all the film TV aspect because it's all highly specialized. Um, my book agent, again, that's specialized to what she does. And then the other agents I work with are Curtis Brown, who represent um, my UK rights and my foreign translation rights. So we've actually sold China, Russia, I believe. Um, so they kind of handle that, and that's also highly specialized. So 
um, yes, getting set up with the right people. And um, I have some insider knowledge of Hollywood, but if you don't, it is a very tricky business in town to figure out, to know who's real, who's not, what's a good fit, what's not. Um, so you really do need a good representative, and I believe that strongly. Another option would be an entertainment attorney um, who can often help um, do deals and advise you. In, in So uh, in a, one entertainment attorney versus several agents could suffice? Well, the agents all do different things. So an entertainment attorney would be in place of having a film or TV agent or manager. Um, you know, you basically need someone who can help you do the deals and, you know, represent the material and um, potentially even take it out on submission um, or take it to the right people um, because it's like the gatekeeper that gets you in the door. Um, Hollywood, you're going to have a really tough time um, getting much done if you don't have someone that's an insider who knows the world um, because it's a highly specialized business. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a great attorney that's say been with your family for years but they have no connections inside then probably... Yeah, I mean someone like that might be able to review a contract for you but again mm -hmm. like what goes in these deals is specific so it's a specialized area of law so if they don't really know what is the industry standards and what are the norms it might be hard for them i mean they could probably advise you on you know basic contract stuff but yeah i think it's really important to have someone that they do these kind of deals and they understand them um, and I always advise everyone, like, please have representation before you sign anything. And that could be an attorney, it could be the author's guild, but somebody needs to look at your contracts because you can get into a lot of trouble if you sign, you know, a bad deal. And a lot of creative people um, do sometimes get taken advantage of or do sometimes sign deals that aren't in their best interest. And that doesn't just apply to writers, applies all across the business. Um, so I'm a big believer in having uh, good people on your team that can advise you. Um, the nice thing about agents is that they take a percentage, so you're not paying them uh, right off the bat. So they're working kind of, I don't want to say it's for free, but it's like you're not paying anyone. Everyone gets paid at the same time. Uh, and a good representative should earn their percentage um, because they should get you a better deal. Um, an attorney, you're usually going to be paying them more hourly, so you might be going out of pocket. Novel structure versus screenplay structure. How are they different? How are they the same? I mean, I think that there's a lot of similarities between them, and when I uh, teach writing, I tend to actually reference screenplay structure. Um, the difference would be that screenplays are much more rigid in terms of um, first act, which is usually the first 30 pages or so, um, second act, midpoint, and, and then how long a script can be. Like, it is much more rigid in terms of the way they're structured, whereas with a book, you have more leeway. Uh, the word count can vary, the page count can vary, um, and then exactly when you're hitting these big moments can also vary. Uh, novels can also get away with being more episodic, um, which is to say, you know, one thing happens, one thing happens, one thing happens, but it's not always building, whereas in a film you can't really do that. Or if you do, I think you're a lot of times in trouble because um, it's not really building into something that's a climax. I mean, most films you're looking at 90 minutes, two hours really at the most. I mean, I know some films go longer, but usually it doesn't work out well. Um, so I think you just have a lot more leeway. But that said, I really believe that, that books benefit from having uh, a lot of the same things in place. Um, so instead of like end of first act moment, I would call it like the big thing that happens right away or the inciting incident of a book. Um, so that would really kind of be the end of first act in a screenplay. So we use a little bit of a different terminology in terms of what I would call it. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think with novels you can be a little more flexible, but um, I tend to think that having the same things, climax, you know, moral choice of a character, and then after the climax resolution, I mean, those things are all the same. 
uh, for the most part. I mean, stories are told a certain way for a reason. We talk about relatability of a main character. So do most, and I'm assuming most YA readers are female, do they want someone that's the same as them, a little bit above them socially, a little bit below them? You know, because if somebody's too above someone, we're going to have a hard time relating, maybe even liking them. It can be. I mean, I, I tend to think, um, you know, a good writer can make you interested or relate to anyone, which is kind of amazing. Um, generally, though, yes, the protagonist should be someone who's relatable in some fashion. And I think you're going to see that a lot in YA, where the protagonist is someone who is, you know, somewhat like the reader. But I think that you can break away from that and still write a successful book that will work. Um, it doesn't always have to be that way. And whether or not a character is likable, you know, I think you always need to understand them. I mean, there is some, I think that if you want to write an unlikable character, you are making your job a little bit harder, but it is possible. I mean, it's not a YA book, but Gone Girl, which is an example I talked about earlier, that characters are highly unlikable in my mind, but the book does work really well. So it is totally possible to do. Um, but anytime you're doing that, I think you are making um, your work a little harder as an author, which can be a good challenge. But, um, you know, with a protagonist, I think you always want to dig in and kind of try to find what is the thing that makes them human, what is the thing that makes us understand them. So if someone, let's say, doesn't have teens, but they want to be a YA author, um, and they're intrigued by their own stories from when they were younger, how do they sort of tap into what's going on today with that sort of oh, yeah, demographic? That, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, we were talking about this in my writing class, and I think all of us like can tap into what it was like to be in high school. And I think that while the experience has changed somewhat, it hasn't changed so much that it's unrelatable. I think a lot of the same things that we experienced are still going on. Social hierarchy, you know, the different kind of stereotypes of what kinds of people you're in school with. Um, there is a whole thing about technology, and this is more applying to contemporary uh, young adult fiction. It doesn't apply so much to what I'm writing, but um, you know, what is the new technology? Are you going to date yourself if you have that in your book? Like if you're writing about Facebook now, is Facebook going to be a thing that only the parents are doing in five years? Will your book feel dated? Um, my advice is always um, to try not to put too much identifying technology into a book unless that is core to what the story is. Um, to kind of try to think about or invent a platform that maybe doesn't exist. So go a little bit inventing on that because it won't date your book in the same way. Um, another thing I see a lot of um, YA authors doing is doing period 80s, right? <laughs> because it's a time before cell phones. Having cell phones changes everything, right? You can find people. It's very hard to get lost if everyone has cell phones. So if you set it in the 80s, and I see a lot of this now, uh, you kind of eliminate all of that technology. Um, another thing I also really highly advise is not to have too much of your book structured around um, texting or um, social media or f cell phones. Like try to keep it more of a storytelling about characters. And those things are more ancillary because what's at the core of a story you know, isn't really going to change a lot and will still have an impact even 20, 30, 40 years from now. Whereas if your book is all about Facebook, then, you know, that might not be relevant 40 years from now. We talk about some controversy in the messages of some YA novels, whether it's shaming of certain types of stereotypes, whether it's wanting the quote strong female character, which sometimes has a negative connotation because 
why should we make someone strong and someone weak? What, can we talk about some of the controversies and how to work around them? Well, there have been a lot of controversies, and this is something I feel strongly about, um, and I see it a lot, where uh, about needing more diversity and diversity of characters in uh, in all fiction, not only young adult fiction. And so um, when I set out to write my book, it was really important to me that my cast of characters be highly diverse. Um, because when I look at things like Hunger Games or Divergent or any of these, and you can call up all the billboards, Twilight, it's mostly white characters, you know, and I think that that to me is not realistic, not realistic for the future, but not realistic even for now, um, you know, and I think it's really incumbent on us as writers to really feature um, characters from different backgrounds and that look different ways. Um, I do think having strong female characters, which is a really exciting trope of YA, is exciting. Um, the reason why I think you see it so much in young adult fiction is because women write young adult fiction way more than men. It is a genre that's highly dominated by female authors. So I think that that's why you see so many great strong women characters in these books versus any other genres. Um, and that's also why the films then end up, because you know Hollywood makes very few films that star women. Um, I would say almost all of the ones that they do make these days are adapted from books that were written by women. So that can be anything from Gone Girl to Hunger Games to Divergent any of these, and that's why. So um, that's again why I think it's really important to see that diversity um, and that sensitivity. Can you talk about the moral implications of what someone writes, even though someone may want to write and show a protagonist in the correct light, quote unquote, there's still stories of, of let's take The Diary of a Teenage Girl, which was a, mm -hmm. a, a novel by Phoebe Glockner. And although there are things in the, in the book and in the film that are not maybe what every parent would want their daughter to be doing, it's very, character, it's very true of yeah. a teenage girl, um, especially in that time period. It was like the 70s or whatever, Bay Area, so oh, to yeah. totally different world. Um, so can we talk about writing with that hanging over your head, but also wanting to keep true to what's going on in either the world now or that world? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's really important to be authentic. And I think even at the risk of being controversial, I'm a big believer in that. And I think, you know, if you're trying to, you know, do something for a reason because you're worried about it, you know, violating someone else's moral standards, um, I think that you're probably not in a great place with what you're writing. I think it really, you know, adhering to truth and authenticity is really important. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to go so dark or so into something but you know there are a lot of kids we have to remember teens deal with a lot of really serious things they deal with drugs they deal with suicide they deal with sex they deal with all these things um, to ignore that I think um, does a disservice now that said like I don't think you know if your book really isn't about that like you know my books are kind of these big adventure science fiction books like if I started to throw in like a drug use plot line that wasn't applicable to my world it would feel forced so I think you know it just really depends on what your narrative is about because I also don't like tacking on of like, oh, here's a random gay character. Let me just put them in because, you know, it's like, I don't like it when it feels like forced or, ta or tacked on, but it is possible. My best friend from high school is Robin Talley and she writes um, queer YA fiction. That is what she does. She's amazing at it. All of her books do feature queer characters and uh, I love reading them and I think it's really important because um, part of why she writes them is because if they had been around when we were in high school, it might have changed her life. Um, so I think it's really, really important to have that diversity in the genre. I was reading something on CNN, just quickly doing research for our interview, and it was just the evolution of YA and, um, you know, how the 80s was one thing, and then the 90s, you know, and then 
course now we've, we've lived through Columbine, 9-11, mm -hmm. and now teen pregnancy, drug abuse, bullying, all that is, is all much more prevalent than maybe Judy Bloom's era. Yeah. And so incorporating that and making it more adult has been, I guess, a struggle in sort of walking that fine line. How much is too adult, which may turn off some parents, right. and how much is not enough that'll turn off the readership. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, from what I know and from what I know other authors are writing, I think they are tackling all of these things, and I don't think they're holding back from dealing with them um, in all their implications, um, and I think that that is fantastic. Um, I think the nice thing when you write things like what I do, which is sci-fi and fantasy, is um, using more allegorical approach to explore um, these issues. So, for example, in one of my colonies, they do have arranged marriage, more or less. It's my military society where they're basically told who they're betrothed to and then um, sent to a clinic where they're supposed to procreate. And so, right, so that's like, but it is a way to look at like what are the implications of, you know, arranged marriage, what are the implications of sex, and this is in a different world. Um, and so it exists in, in my book, and so maybe that brings up some interesting questions. So it makes you think about kind of the way our society is arranged. So that's the nice thing about writing science fiction, is you can kind of look at it from a different angle. Um, that said, uh, in terms of parents and censorship, you know, I just tend not to worry so much about that. And I think a lot of authors really kind of don't. I mean, maybe there are some, and I have seen lists like clean YA that go around um, where there's no cussing or sex or anything. Um, Sounds you know, boring. Sorry. I know, it totally <laughs> does. Um, and I think, you know, teens are pretty sophisticated these days. And like, they're getting the content no matter what, right? Just between what's on the internet, what's on television. Um, so, you know, in my mind, I'd rather them even just be reading it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think most authors I know are writing stories to be responsible and to communicate something about experiences. You know, and let's just say you are a teen that had, like my friend's book, who had a parent who did commit suicide, and here's a book that is detailing that kind of experience. Like, wouldn't you want to have that available to read? Mm -hmm. to, it makes you, you know, to make you feel less alone, or like my friend Robin who writes books with um, featuring gay characters. Like, wow, isn't that much more relatable if you're in high school struggling with your identity and struggling with trying to tell your friends and family? Like, and then you read something that makes you feel less alone in the world. So mm. I think that's really important. Yeah, just driving around LA, you could see any number of bus bench ads where we won't n mention the name of the company, but yeah. they're quite risque, and you see sure. that that is just part of the culture now, you know, and it I think it really always wasn't. has been. I think maybe that was more uh, censored at a certain point in time, but I mean, like, any bad word, believe me, a teenager has heard it and probably might be using it. Like, I mean, to think that they live in a bubble where they're not exposed to things, I think, is a fallacy. I mean, obviously, within a certain age range, but yeah, and if they're not hearing it from TV, they're hearing it at school. Um, and I don't think it's that possible to control all of that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it is just teaching about, you know, responsibility and about, you know, the proper context for things. But, you know, yeah, I don't see it as an issue with um, YA. I think it's great that they're tackling so many hard-hitting issues. Have you ever had a reader approach you uh, and was excited or curious about a certain part of the book where you were really, or, or the story, that you were really surprised that they picked up on that and so, it changed something in you and how you approach the next part of a chapter because you were surprised at how much they really focused on something that you thought maybe was just glossed over. Yeah, I mean, and there have been a few things. Um, one of them was that um, 
there's a point of view I continue um, in the underwater colony through the subsequent two books where I track certain characters and there are some um, what I would call minor supporting characters that had a big impact where people were like oh I love Maud I wish I hope she continues I hope she comes back and she was a relatively small character uh, in the first book so it was kind of gratifying when somebody picks up on something and you're like oh good because I have a lot planned and a lot is going to happen uh, with that character I'm glad that you liked them um, there's a character who is in the second book who um, I won't reveal too much about, but her name's Seeker, and she comes from uh, maybe one of the other colonies. But she, I wrote her in a way where I was like, God, I don't know if she's gonna work as a character. I really hope people like her, because um, she's a little bit devolved, a little bit kind of Gollum-ish, like from Lord of the Rings. Um, but I have some early bloggers that are looking at the book, and one of them was mentioned how much she likes Seeker. So I was like, oh good, I hope her character's working, because um, she was, for me, a challenge. She's a character who also presents as an antagonist to start with. Um, so I was like, I hope that this whole arc will work with her because she's really important in the same way Gollum is super important in Lord of the Rings and it wouldn't work without him. So anyway, so it is kind of nice when um, certain characters connect or certain things that you wrote work. Do you envision the, the readers while you're writing or are you so in a world that it's not even part of, I mean, do, are you picturing someone reading this? and their reactions. I'm just curious how close do you I feel to them? I don't really. I mean, I think when you're writing books and you want to publish, you are like having this big kind of dream like, oh, I so hope that I have readers. But um, it's not like someone specific that I picture. Um, and you know, when you're in a story, I'm just really in the story. So I'm really not thinking about a lot else. I really get um, pretty absorbed into just the story of my book. It's kind of like being reading a book, but then it's like choose your own adventure where you get to like, you know, create where it goes. So, um, yeah, so I'm pretty much absorbed when I'm in that. And then I try not to think about it because, um, you know, I just try to keep a really kind of gratitude perspective. And I'm just grateful for anyone who reads and loves the book. Like, it's so great. Anyone who comes to reading, I just think it's so fabulous. And I don't care who they are, where they came from, you know, and I always try to talk to them and, like, have a relationship because, you know, I just always try to channel myself as a young reader, a young fan of films, fan of music, and whenever I've gotten to meet one of my idols, you know, and what that is like. And I always just try to keep in mind, you know, going back home is especially cool because, you know, there's not a lot of people come through Roanoke, Virginia. So, you know, it's really cute, especially also when the kids, when you're talking about your book and then they, a lot of times they don't realize you're the author. Sometimes they just think that you're, you know, talking about the book or what. And then there'll be this moment where like, oh my God, you wrote this. And it's like this big deal. So um, I just try to keep that in mind. Lastly, top five books a beginning YA writer should read. Wow. To, tort to develop themselves. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so much great stuff um, that had a huge impact on me. Um, and it really kind of will depend on what your uh, genre you want to write. Um, I'm trying to think about it. Well, John Green, I think you have to read um, The Fault in Our Stars. Or, I mean, he has a lot of other great books. He writes so well. His voice is really incredible. Um, I think if you haven't read Harry Potter, please go read Harry Potter. And I'm jealous because I wish I hadn't read it and I could read it for the first time again. Um, you know, I think, you know, Hunger Games, the first book, is absolutely worth reading. I love a book called um, Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lanny Taylor. Um, although I didn't love um, the subsequent books in the series, the first book is fabulous. Um, there's an author named Lee Bardugo, who I love to death. She's based in L.A. and she wrote Shadow and Bone and a whole series with those and then she has a new book series out um, first one six of crows and it did hit number one on the new york times bestseller list 
Um, my other favorite author writing right now is uh, probably Victoria Schwab. Um, she also writes under the name V.E. Schwab. Um, and she has an adult fantasy series called A Darker Shade of Magic, but she also writes YA, which is where she started. And her new one, This Savage Song, is next on my to-read list. So she's a great writer. What about blogs or um, you know magazines that uh, cater to YA authors in terms of support, how to? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. YA Books Central, which is uh, run by CJ Redwine, who also is a New York Times bestselling YA author. She's fabulous. Um, her new book's Red Queen, I believe it's called, um, is a great place. Um, there's a ton of bloggers who specialize in YA, and a lot of us, um, you know, will get reviewed by them. I do have a blog tour going live um, for my book that publishes, so you can just look up. There's so many uh, great blogs. And in terms of writing resources for teen writers, um, I believe there's something called Figment, which is a pretty cool publication and has writing advice online. Um, but the things that apply to YA apply to all fiction. So, I mean, mm. there's just tons of good places to read. Um, I love Neil Gaiman's website and writing and blog. And yeah, he's more known for his adult stuff, but he's written comic books and he writes children's books like Coraline and they're fabulous. So, you know, I think you can learn from all of them. Um, Stephen King, who is an adult writer, his book on writing, uh, a lot of people consider him the best young adult author that is not actually a young adult author. There's a reason why teenagers love his books so much. He writes a lot about kids and teens. They're a lot of times the protagonists. So, can't go wrong with him.